My name is Bill Jay, and I'm talking to you from Tempe, Arizona. When I saw a bunch of photographs which I didn't understand, uh, then I would contact the photographer. memory is that it was just a ring at the door, you, you know, and suddenly there was this guy. I came into the room, I looked the guy up and down and said, hmm, this is an interesting character. The reason I accepted your offer to be included here is because I hold the guy in such high regard. I personally think he's the most interesting writer there's been on photography. He owed a lot of money and um, he just got out of everything. He escaped. He was a lone voice in America. He was a beacon of hope, really. He was an evangelist. Bill was a catalyst for all of us. He was the flame that started it all. The meaning of that is unintelligible, and so it should be. My name is Grant Scott, and this is In Search of Bill J. This episode, we're going to take a deep dive into the photo study centre that Bill created. We're going to hear about it, what was so special about it, and who went, and how it ran. But before we do, there's something I'd like to pick up on, which was happening at the same time as Album Magazine, and at the same time that Bill was starting the photo study centre. We're talking 1970-71 there. The thing that was happening at the same time was a photographic gallery. Bill and David Hearn were instrumental in setting up the short-lived Do Not Bend gallery, Britain's first gallery to regularly show a programme of photography. Bill was contacted by Clodie Hall-Dare, an aristocratic art enthusiast whose background in market research had suggested that there was a gap in the market for a photographic gallery, and who had been impressed with the free copy of album she had received accidentally in the post. Slightly strange, actually, as her gallery was just down the road from the album office. But anyway, the gallery opened in November 1970. It was in a flat, as I said, just up the road from the album offices. Emphasis in our exhibitions will be towards tight, self-contained, one-man shows of extremely high standard, Bill proclaimed. And fittingly, the gallery opened with concurrent shows by American Roger Mertin and East London documentarian John Claridge, alongside Brass Eyes images of graffiti. The Do Not Bang Gallery would not survive long, but a more important successor in some ways followed very shortly thereafter. The Photographer's Gallery was founded in 1971, and it was run by Sue Davies, who we heard from in the last episode, who'd worked with Bill at the ICA. Now, what's interesting to me about this, and I think this is one of the main reasons why I spend so much time researching Bill and trying to find out the facts around photography at that time, is that on the Photographer's Gallery website, it clearly states in our history, founded in 1971 as the UK's first public gallery dedicated to photography. Well, it wasn't. Do Not Bend was, and although it was short-lived, there's no doubt that it was a blueprint for what the photographer's gallery was to become. 
Institute of Contemporary Art and the Photo Study Centre were the venue for Bill's last hurrah in British photography. Progressive, friendly to American art, youth-orientated and not averse to controversy, the ICA looked like an ideal venue from which to launch a photographic revolution. There was a groundswell of interest in photography within the arts, and the ICA could be a beachhead, Bill believed, for reforming British photography. As we heard in the last episode, Bill had been parachuted in by Lord Goodman, and that had upset the staff. When he arrived in September 1970, he discovered that the only space he had allocated to him was an old storeroom. Unperturbed, this was soon converted into a darkroom and space for a slide projector, slide bank, planned to be the best collection of contemporary British photography anywhere in the world, and tape-recorded interviews with photographers. Bill commandeered the ICA's main concourse and main gallery spaces for photographic displays, mostly by young photographers, and set up a library of international photographic magazines with a small collection of photographic books. Weekly talks were initiated and given an institutional home. Photographers visiting Britain would show work, most notably Paul Strand, and panel discussions on topics such as the photographic press proved very popular. Bill worked hard to create a warm, informal atmosphere that would both encourage latent interest in photography and, like Creative Camera, draw extent creative photographers out of the woodwork. As a space for photography, the Photographic Studies Centre succeeded beyond Jay's ambitions. Regular audiences of two to three hundred people attended the talks, which compared favourably to the rather anemic numbers for the other programmes the ICA was putting on. At times, the talks had to be invitation only because of their popularity. Likewise, the rotating gallery shows proved a popular focal point. William Messer, a young American resident in London who studied at the San Francisco Art Institute at the same time Tony Ray Jones was teaching there, who would later become prominent writer on British photography and a curator at the Photo Gallery in Cardiff, was conscripted to help out. Bill was already at the ICA and he was just about to try to open a place called the Photographic Study Centre. And I walked in and... um Offered to help, and the next thing I knew, I had a paintbrush in my hand and was helping paint the walls for the photo study center. He was unusual, but but then again, I wasn't sure how unusual, because he was English. I found him entertaining, I guess. And I loved his energy, and I I admired how much he had already accomplished. And uh, one of the things he left me with, which was kind of a curse was this feeling that uh, one person can make an enormous difference. Photographers from not just all over the country, but from other countries, the the word spread about the Photo Study Center, and they would drop in. You know, photographers that that lived and worked in and around London would come come in at lunchtime, and and I I think Carti Bersoni even popped in at one time. Important French photographers and other British photographers and American photographers would come by the study center and um, we had this kind of ritual where if they had photographs with them, the photographs disappeared in the back where, where I had built the dark room, but we also had a copy camera. And uh, we would make slides. We'd photograph their work and, and make slides of it. And those slides would become part of the slide collection that we maintained. 
And the point of having the slide collection was so that younger photographers um, and, and even commercial photographers could come in and view the slides. And I don't remember how many we had, but we had, we had quite a number of carousel trays full of slides of contemporary British photography and all kinds of other people's photography. And you could come in and sort of educate yourself. You know, you could find out what's going on and what kind of work interests you. And if you were... If you were a commercial photographer or a fashion photographer, you could find ideas to steal, you know. <laughs> um, uh, it was a very special place. And he was he was trying to do something that um, I wasn't even aware of anything like it in America. This idea of a, of a place for study for the medium of photography where people could gather and talk to each other and share ideas. These carousels, if you went to the photo study centre at the ICA, which I later did, these carousels were lined up on the shelf there in yellow boxes and it had the name of the photographer on. You pulled it off the shelf, you stuck it on the carousel machine, you could just sit there and go through people's work. Photographer Daniel Meadows there, reliving his experience of looking at those carousels at the photo study centre. So I went to London, as I recall, I don't, again, I don't remember the exact details, but I definitely remember going to some strange lecture theatre somewhere in London in the dark night to be, and to hear Paul Strand talk, talking all about his uh, Hebrides work. And um, so that was a real link with, you know, another generation of photography. Bill was a master at making those connections, bringing together the contemporary young photographers. Daniel Meadows, just 21 years of age there. But Bill introducing young photographers to Victorian photography, European photography, American photography, making connections and bringing context to all of this work. However, as Bill told us in a previous episode, things were about to go wrong. One of the ICA's aims with the centre was to develop more sustained interest in ICA activities. And the Photographic Study Centre underperformed in this regard. Rarely would any of the people who attended photography meetings join the ICA or donate money to it. By early 1972, institutional support was foundering through a combination of low membership, take-up and management clashes, I should say, with Jay's forthright personality. The ICA began to limit the exhibitions, send the slide collection to art colleges and inquire as to whether other venues could take over responsibility for the centre. Replying to a letter asking for her help in continuing its activities, Sue Davis hoped that its programme of events could continue as they were. She praised the centre's flourishing activities and singled out Jay's contribution. I think you are getting marvellous results for £20 a week. His ability to infuse people is very valuable, and it's not like looking for a secretary if he has to be replaced. I feel that if Bill doesn't get accepted for New Mexico, it could be well worth taking him on at a proper salary. Davis did not offer her space for the centre, and it closed in mid-1972, when alternative premises could not be found. The slide collection did, however, find a permanent home at the Photographer's Gallery. After the study 
bloody feather clothes, I practically didn't have time to turn around before he was gone. Sue hinted in her letter to the ICA where Bill might be going to next, but we'll save that for a future episode. I think he thought he could get a gallery going and sell photographs at enough money to survive. And you really couldn't in the early 70s. You could buy anything for a fiver. It wasn't as quick as, as, as Bill really wanted it to be. Bill wanted to do everything now, and he would like, I need money for doing this, I need money for doing that. I really wanted to appeal to everybody. I, I thought, fine, we'll, we'll frame them nicely, and we'll hang them on the wall, and they are then, like any other artwork, and people are never frightened. They'd come into the gallery, they'd say exactly what they thought about everything, whereas they would go to some contemporary art show and they'd be really scared to say anything in case it was wrong. You know, and I don't think Bill did either. He wanted people to do it and understand it and enjoy it. The word that keeps coming up in my search to describe Bill is an evangelist. He inspired so many people. That's my perception. But I wonder what Sue thought of Bill. I think he was an inspiration. Because what he was doing was throwing ideas at you and you couldn't do it all. So it was a bit like trying to calm down an obstreperous person. I mean, he wanted it all and and he knew how to do it and he thought it should all happen his way. It was very much his way. And if you said, well, I can't do that, but I can do this, is it any good? Well, it's never going to be quite good enough. But, you know, there are people like that, but they are an inspiration. They do try to, you know, get you going. It is perhaps little surprise that Bill felt the need to try and control things. Over that two-year period, he was dealing with the Photo Centre, Album Magazine and the Frith Collection, which is something else we're going to talk about in a future episode. There was so much going on in his life at that time He must have felt as if his passion was the lead that was going to make everything okay. Well, it was just the beginning, really, of um, treating photography seriously on another level. It would be a mistake and it would be inaccurate to say that everything that was happening around photography in the UK in the late 1960s and in the early 1970s was all down to Bill Jay. Not something that I'm saying. But what I am saying, and I think what our search is showing, is that Bill had a finger in every pie, and he was influential on many people. In that sense, that influence became the catalyst required for so much that then occurred throughout the 1970s. As an example, at the Photographer's Gallery, if you go through the exhibitions that occurred there over the next few years after it began, many of them can be traced back to photographers that originally appeared in Creative Camera. And that's the case in other galleries around the country. Bill was showing work for the first time. He was introducing people to new ways of thinking, new ways of engaging with photography, and there is no doubt that there was an excitement around what he was doing. But it was taking a real toll on Bill himself. There was this purity about his approach. I don't think that he was ever self-seeking. I mean, a lot of people in photography 
photography, uh, when they give their support to something, you know, at the back of their mind is what they can get out of it. I don't think that ever entered Bill's mind. Photographer, teacher and photo editor Bryn Campbell there, bringing his assessment to Bill's approach to the sharing of photographers and their work. Bill was now turning from a magazine editor into a lecturer, a teacher. And that's going to point to where he ends up in a year's time as well. Another episode going to be dedicated to the influence that Bill had on photographic education in the UK and one talk in particular. But let's hear from one of the students who benefited from his input in those early days. Bill J was really uh, quite different from the other lecturers. He was almost like a cartoon character in as much as he, you know, he lit the fuse to a bomb and placed it quietly underneath the course. In as much as his technique, when he taught, it was as though you were involved in the lesson far more. You know, it's a very progressive form of teaching for the time. Some of the students warmed to that approach and wanted to enter that debate and go down that route with Bill. And some of the students, I think, kind of backed off. They didn't see the relevance of this. I went to kind of like departmental meetings where you had to have a student rep there. And one could sense that some of what Bill was doing was a bit controversial. And certainly one sense that that was echoed in the staff as well. It wasn't almost enough to, uh, you know, in terms of Bill's contact with the class going through and things like that, that it almost like that it was like extracurricular activities that you know most of the lecturers you know did their job they went home or whatever but with bill it was a holistic experience and of course what happened was i think he started introducing people like david hearn as possible visiting lecturers uh, and david hearn came in and gave one or two lectures and for those students who warmed to Bill and could see, you know, what the debate was and how important the debate was and wanted to get involved, there came in these sort of extracurricular activities. And the extracurricular activities, that holistic approach, would be soirees at David Hearn's. Yeah, I can remember going back after hours to this thing at, at David Hearn's. And the overwhelming thing, that, again, it's really strange how people have different... And I can remember... Uh, a talk, you know, and uh, I think that there was the ubiquitous uh, uh, carousel projector, I think, photographs and, and, and a body of a, a photographer's work, an American photographer's work or whatever, would be presented in, in discussion, you know, from a carousel projector or a device like that. There would be wine, there would be sitting around a table. And again, there's a sort of a certain bohemianness about it, you know, it's a certain amount of, little bit of agit prop, like a group meeting after hours. And the question would come back, you know, do you agree with me or don't you? And then you start saying, yeah, yes, but I agree with you. Do you agree with me? Yes. What are you going to do about it? Because it's your responsibility to sort of go out into the world. It's your responsibility to go out into the world and change things. So it's almost like an evangelical kind of experience, you know. What are you personally going to do to kind of fulfill, to help fulfill the proper destiny of photography? I certainly was left with that feeling and I'm sure that's a feeling he left with many other people. And that's what makes him quite unusual, you know, quite, quite a unique person. Photographer Mark Trompetelier there, 
talking about his remembrances, his experience of being taught by Bill whilst at the London College of Communications in the late 1960s, early 1970s. I think as these episodes progress, we're starting to find out more and more about Bill. I think our search is becoming fruitful. There's no doubt that in my mind, a picture of who he was and what drove him is starting to become clear. I hope it is for you also. In the next episode, Bill goes down to Reigate in Surrey, just outside London, and tries to save one of the most important photographic archives the country had at the time. But as you know with Bill, it's never straightforward. This has been a United Nations of Photography production. All music was composed and played by Laura Ritchie. If you'd like to find out more about the film, Do Not Bend, The Photographic Life of Bill J, visit www.donotbendfilm.com.